Father, we ask for your wisdom as we turn to uh, Scripture this morning, as we try to learn more about what it means that you're a covenant God and a covenanting God. One that we relate to not merely in uh, abstract ways, um, also not only in uh, hyper-personalized ways, but in, um, in a rich way. Uh, organized way, Lord, uh, you've reached out to us. And the more that we understand this, the more that we understand how we relate to you. So we ask all that you would give us wisdom. Um, we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> there's a handout up front. And um, you may find that helpful. I usually like to do slides so people are looking up more than looking down. Um, but it might be helpful for you to take a notes and that kind of thing. Uh, how many of you have any idea what covenant theology means? Some of you might. If you were to attempt a, a definition, what would it? What might it be? There's no strikes against you for a wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, relational will be a key component, right? Uh, his promises. Mm-hmm. Any other ideas? Well, you know, I think that uh, one way to think about this question of why we want to talk about covenant theologies, I, I think through the through this course, we're going we're gonna to think about it in, a, in at least two different ways. Uh, one is that it helps us understand the organization of Scripture. So if you're trying to understand particularly the, the Old Testament more, although I think it certainly informs the way we understand the New Testament, as we will see, uh, it helps give a little bit of structure to that. If you... Uh, it also... Because of that is a really helpful hermeneutic tool, in other words, a tool for interpreting the Bible. <clears throat> but as we'll see, is it's not merely a convenient way of God describing things in an ancient Near Eastern context. In fact, this kind of thought spreads deeply into our theology and into our life as a church. So uh, covenant theology has been a hallmark of the Reformed tradition for um, a long time really essentially since there was a reformed tradition that was distinct. So uh, let's sort of dive into this a little bit. Um, What do you think when evangelicals talk about having a personal relationship with God? What does that call to mind? The first questions are always hard. Yeah, read your Bible and pray. Okay. So that's sort of on the sort of obligation side of it. What do you, what else do we, what else comes to mind? Good and bad. Well, I also think of it in terms of sustaining your life. You're listening to your preaching. Right. Well, not the Maybe that's because you think covenantally. <laughs> um, yeah. Leonard? That God is a personal God, uh, not just a force, but a real person. 
Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a lot of excesses too, or some, uh, you guys are being nice. Uh, the way that evangelicals talked about having a personal relationship with Jesus often sounds uh, like our relationship with Jesus could be anything that we like. So Jesus is my boyfriend, you know, Jesus, like, Marriage might be a good metaphor. Boyfriend, maybe not, right? Um, uh, we, we think about, you think about the host of ways. I mean, all you've got, really got to do is spend time with uh, teenagers and ask them what they think about their relationship with God and hear all the uh, interesting ways in which that gets described. So, um, and again, that's not partly, partly that's developmental for them, but partly it's also the vagaries of calling it a personal relationship, right? Because uh, it's fine in the sense that it is personal, right? And God is a person. So we're not talking about a, a uh, merely relating to some, something that is a principle about the universe. Uh, but there's more that we can say about this. And covenant is the word that the Bible uses over and over and over and over and over again to describe that relationship. Um, <clears throat> it's a, uh, in one sense then, uh, I, I think that covenantal theology helps us to think against the background of the vague set of expectations that people have when they talk about a personal relationship with God, right? Um, it helps us to get, um, it, it helps us to get sort of to the bottom of it. And, you know, a definition of what a covenant is, I think this is on your handout. Um, it, there's a few different ways to describe it. A, a longer definition is by O. Palmer Robertson, a relationship of oaths and bonds and involves mutual, though not necessarily equal, commitments. Um, that's a technical term. Meredith Klein puts it more briefly as a divinely sanctioned commitment. So, uh, you know, so it's a commitment, obviously, between parties. Uh, it's sanctioned in the sense that there are blessings and curses related to it. <clears throat> um, the fulfillment or breaking of it, and it is divinely given. Now, in the ancient Near East, this would, it would have been divinely witnessed when you were talking about between people or between nations. Uh, in the case of God himself, it's given by him. Uh, he's the one that initiates it. So uh, this is really important because this is the, the ancient Near East, this was the, the way of talking about important relationships were covenantal. Um, it is different than, than uh, well, we can get into that in a minute. Uh, a lot of times the way this would work and where we see, the way we see most of the covenants in the Bible play out is like suzerainty treaties. So you would have a situation, and the, the nation state, you realize, is a recent political arrangement that comes out of essentially the late Middle Ages. Uh, up until that point, 
the idea of like a country with defined boundaries, right? That that was multiple cities and multiple localities, you know, covered all these. That did not exist. Uh, largely, you had city states in the ancient world, and then a kind of uh, porous <laughs> boundaries, right, between uh, between those and the the surrounding country. And uh, but the way that things developed, and this is especially clear as some of the bigger empires developed in the ancient Near East, is you would have you would have a sort of treaty arrangement, right, between city states. We're going to help each other out. And as somebody becomes the more powerful one in the region, they become the uh, king of kings, the you know the lord of lords, that kind of thing. Um, so there would be, so they they would have treaties together and recognize each other as kings. But one was obviously the the one who was disproportionately powerful in the relationship. So you would have a sort of suzerain vassals, the, the more technical language about it relationship and uh, what's what is uh, particularly powerful is as you start to see the way they, this works out you start to realize this is all over the Bible uh, and and so what happened was you know, historically reformed theology started talking a lot more because they saw this word covenant all over the place and so we started talking more about this but as we got into the early 20th century, uh, all this archaeological evidence about the way that covenants worked in the Old Testament era, you know, like showed up. We started to see this. So, a common structure is the one you see uh, at the bottom here. This is this is an old, you know, treaty that was dug up somewhere. Um, uh, it starts with a preamble. And turn to Exodus twenty if you got a Bible. This is the this is the Ten Commandments. This is a place you can see it very obviously. So, uh, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So that's the beginning, right? And then there's the commandments that follow. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall... <clears throat> not make yourselves a carved image, etc., etc., and then you get to the end of the the commandments, and uh, <clears throat> verse eighteen. Now, when the, all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, "You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die." Moses said to the people, "Do not fear, for God has come to test you. The fear that." that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. People stood far off while Moses drew near in the thick darkness, uh, into the thick darkness where God was. Now, <clears throat> do you hear a preamble <clears throat> that identifies the parties? What is it? I am the Lord your God. Historical prologue, who, what? Brought you out of Egypt. Do you hear ethical stipulations in all this? Right? Okay, I mean, that, that's what we think about when we think about this passage, right? Um, are all the ethical stipulations. Um, sanctions are, to somewhat, invo are somewhat involved in this. Uh, uh, it's more explicit in certain commands. 
And certainly the broader Mosaic Covenant has a lot of sanctions involved. Uh, there's an invocation of witnesses even. Um, I mean, God is witness to himself, but the people are standing there as, as the earthly witnesses as well. Um, and there's not really succession arrangements yet at this point in it, but uh, I mean, you can start to see how even in something like the Ten Commandments, the covenantal structure is there. Now, this is a little bit, this is a very broad brush of, of them. <clears throat> Sometimes there are some variations in it, but uh, that's kind of, that gives you kind of the idea. So a covenant then is more than a document. Right? The document is about what? About whom? Who's involved? Anyone? The two parties involved, right? It's about their relationship first, right? Like, in other words, the covenant is the, the document is the support of a much richer relationship. You hear, so what, what, is, what is often connected with this are various oaths that people take. Um, when, do we, when do we talk about covenants in, even in the modern world? Marriage, right? So you take vows. And those vows are till when? Till death parts you, right? So it's a lifelong commitment. All right, so there's oaths involved. There are often symbolic exa- uh, actions connected with it. Uh, we know this. I'll, I'll read you from one, uh, one treaty that you'll... Between Asher Nuriyami V and Matayili Uma. It's a mouthful. Anyway, uh, so there, there's, there's kind of this document going about... Uh, their relationship, and then it gets to this point in this document, this is how it reads, this spring lamb has not been brought out of the fold uh, of its, uh, brought out of its fold for sacrifice, nor a banquet, nor a purchase, nor uh, for divination for a sick man, nor to be slaughtered, it has been brought out to conclude the treaty between Asher Nuriyami and Madiyaliuma. Um it goes on, right? This head is not the head of a spring lamb. It is the head of Matiuliuma. In other words, they're cutting this animal apart, right? This is what they're saying as they're cutting this animal apart, uh, ritually. Uh, it goes on and talks about, you know, if you do this, your head's going to be thrown, you know, cut off and thrown into the fire. Uh, this shoulder is not the shoulder of the spring lamb. It is the shoulder of Matiuliuma. It's the shoulder of his son's. His magnates and the people of his land, if Matiliuma should sin against this treaty, so may, just as the shoulder of this lamb is torn out and placed uh, into its mouth, the shoulder of Matiliuma and his sons and his magnates and his people, his land will be torn out and placed in his mouth. So that's pretty graphic, right? Um, anybody want to live back in ancient Hittite uh, civilization now? But. Um, the point is, right, there's symbolic actions that occur along with the document being written. Uh, this is going to play importantly into how we understand covenants and where we kind of see covenantal action in the Bible. 
Um, and the king play, played a kind of representative role in all this, as you can hear even in that. The king is the representative of the people. So what the king does, or what's true about the king, is true about the whole of his people. Whether he does well or whether he fails. Um, that, again, this is a, a way in which I think, uh, to some extent, our individualistic assumptions are diff- make, it, make it difficult for us to understand covenants and how they work and what is legally binding. Uh, but even, I mean, you know, you've got you to recognize that even in our own political system, this is true, right? That the way in which we're regarded around the world has to do with our leaders. Um, and, uh, I mean, who's going to drag us into war, right? But our leaders. Or who's going to keep us out of war? But our leaders, right? You know, um, so while this seems unjust in certain ways often, uh, it in fact is sort of a quite realistic account about how, um, how people are actually treated in the world. Um, so he would act on behalf of the people and the people would be identified with him. Uh, it's also more than a relationship, right? Uh, in some vague sense. So again, I think that the, probably the, the difficulty with evangelical talk about a personal relationship with God is it is a uh, that idea of relationship covers over a host of conceptual sins. It's uh, it's too vague. Uh, again, the as we were kind of noting, like oftentimes people sort of fill that with any kind of version of a relationship that they want. And there's a lot of you know you get into a lot of practical discussions with people about, say for example, whether they need to obey God and what He says in the Bible. Um, so this is, you know, this is contrary to sort of also a free-form spirituality. That the Bible actually has quite specific notions of what it means to relate to God. And, uh, uh, and it's more than a contract. What, so what is a contract? How do you distinguish a covenant from a contract? What's that? A legal agreement. Um, how big is its scope, typically? Yeah, yeah, right. There's usually a specific exchange of goods or services, right? Like that's that's how we would talk about it. And uh, and you can break a contract. You probably have to pay some kind of cost, right? If it's being enforced, you you have to pay some fine, some fee. Uh, damages, you know. But you can break it and walk away. And if you've got the resources, right, you can easily break it um, and not lose any sleep over it. A covenant is different. A covenant is is like a familial bond. So actually, in some of these ancient Near Eastern covenants, the, the, the great king, the king of kings, would say, uh, I will be like a father to you and you will be to me like a son. You can file that away for later. That's gonna when we talk about how it informs systematic categories. Um, uh, they say you'll be like, to me like a father. You'll be I'll be like, you will be like a son to me. And the language of love is often used. 
I mean, even, I mean, I read to you that, that thing where there's all these threats, right, about in the sanctions. But there's also this language of, like, love. Like, you're, you will love me, again, like a father. And, uh, and a big, the big Hebrew word that comes up often is hesed, uh, which is this covenant love of God. So in the old King James, it was the word translated loving kindness as, like, a compound, gigantic word. That's usually, by the way, when you see something like that, that's usually a tip that there's just a lot going on with that word, right? And then they don't—they're trying to cram all of this meaning into one translation of it. And uh, in the ESV that we often use, it is uh, your steadfast love. So, uh, so you see that over and over and over again throughout the Bible. Um, and I just want to say that being covenantal then is one of the distinctives of being reformed. So when people talk about what it means to be in the reformed tradition, often what comes up is the five points of Calvinism, uh, which is fair enough. I mean, that's certainly part of it. But there are a lot of, there are, there historically have been lots of denominations that were believed in predestination, but weren't considered reformed. And, uh, and that's because the two distinctives are really being confessional and being covenantal. We're not going to talk about the confessional piece uh, so much here. But, um, but having a way of thinking about the Bible, not only that this was a convenient way for God to organize the Old Testament around these covenants, but that it has an ongoing significance for the way we think about ourselves and how we relate to God and how the church thinks about itself even. Okay, that's all. That's kind of the intro stuff. You have any questions about covenants in the ancient Near East or some of that, how they worked? Um, you were saying that they used the word love, and um, the John Wilkes document, which uh, Well, yeah, the vassal kings, yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, typically, yeah. Um, or I mean, sometimes, so even within like biblical studies now, there's questions about that term hesed and, and whether we ought to translate it love, although I think that largely has to do with semantic drift within modern English. And so some would say covenant faithfulness or something like that. Is that and, I, and that's certainly part of the idea. Um, I think you lose something when you... When you lose the idea of love, and I think actually the, the the centrality of marriage as one of the main covenantal metaphors kind of speaks to that, right? That we ought that we we, ought, we we don't really want to lose that idea of love. Maybe we ought to question our own our own notions of what love is. But. No, no. Yeah, and, and even that the greater king wouldn't either, right? That he's going to look out for them. He's going to, yeah. yeah. Is it covenant of commitment to love, or is it, or is it promises to do certain things to get a friendship? Uh, like when David and yeah. Jonathan make a covenant of friendship, like, mm-hmm. what, is, what does that mean, like, the covenant? 
Uh, I think it does. What I'm going to argue is that those are inseparable for God. I think in human terms, one might precede the other. Um, although, even, like, even when we talk about marriage as a covenant in the Old Testament, they did not think about dating and all this other, you know, like, like they still would have thought like you make a covenant and that's where you learn to love is within that context. Um, yeah. I mean, that, they didn't really know each yeah. And that may or may not be our uh, Advent series coming up. So, um, <laughs> and I may or may not be preaching on Route 3. So, uh, the, yeah, no, exactly. The, um, so you're spoiling my sermon. The, uh, yeah, I, I think that, I, I mean, I think it's a good question. I think there's cases where you see people who have a strong relationship and they formalize it in the case of David and Jonathan. Um, what, what, what I think about God is that I, I'm going to make a case here that creation is itself covenantal. And so those are not really separable for God. That makes sense. Which is why, you know, again, if you want to back up to the, some systematic categories and talk about God's love for those that he's predestined, which comes first, it's hard. And that's been a essentially insolvable theological problem within the Reformed tradition, I think for good reason, because I don't think they are separable. God's covenant relationship and his love for those that he covenanted with, like they just don't. You might say maybe he doesn't even think about them as separate things. Um, Okay, let's get into Genesis 1, and we, we're going to stay in Genesis 1 to 3 this morning, uh, for the rest of the morning. We're not going anywhere else. Um, I know we just did, as some of you were in the class, that was an overview of Genesis 1 to 11. We're not going to do as much in depth, but we are going to, we're thinking about the covenantal shape of this, these passages. So, um, somebody want to read... Uh, let's say the first five verses. Josh. Yep. Thanks. Um, so you get the you get the the start of the sequence, right? Uh, in those last few verses, it's going to take us through the six days of creation and into the seventh day of God's rest. And uh, and uh, each time, well, actually, he doesn't do it in the first day, but uh, seven times throughout <laughs> that sequence, he will say he will pronounce that it's good. He's made us good. So uh, let me ask you this: Where where is the vantage point in Genesis one? 
Where is the narrator located? It's a perspective question. Yeah. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what, what do we get immediately? Two categories for, for the creation, right? It's a biblical cosmology 101. There's two locations of reality, right? There's heaven and earth. Um, what, is the, what is heaven always associated with in the rest of the Bible? The throne room of God. Right, so it is, you know, and sometimes, it, and it's often spoken of locationally as being above. Uh, we, we actually did touch on this a little bit in the Genesis class. I think that has a lot to do, I mean, certainly it has to do with the fact that uh, in a formal setting, generally the person who's more important, even, even in a modern setting, this is true, but it's very, it's very true in the ancient world, was some, they would be seated above people, right? There would be a, uh, there's still a days, you know, in, in a, like a formal dining situation and uh, and so they would be raised up right so that they but what 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 is a functional what do you gain functionally from being up high you can see everything I mean I think it's that simple in one sense right it's like to say that God is high above lifts up say that everything is laid out before him right he doesn't miss anything um, this is why you build towers. This is why you do other things in, in an ancient city, right? Is so that you get a vantage point. Uh, why being on a hill is a is a good strategic position to be in. So uh, so it's above in that sense. There's all these connotations to it, um, which imply a lot about God. But it is His throne room. Now I think this is important for some of our the arguments about Genesis one and its kind of how to interpret it and that sort of thing, is that this is not somebody located on earth, right? <laughs> this, is, this is the vantage point of heaven itself. And everything that's described is described as what goes on on earth. Can you, think about a, can you think of another place in the Bible where there's a heavenly vantage point and a description of what's going on on earth? Job is one of them, absolutely. Revelation. I mean, in one sense, the whole structure of Revelation is kind of moving back and forth between those two things, right? This is the heavenly perspective on what's going on, and here's what's happening on earth. Now, it's still figurative in that situation about what's going on on earth, uh, but they're often contrasted because what you see is the saints are triumphing in heaven. But on earth, they're often suffering. Um, so it offers... So in that case... After sin has entered the world, after you know, as the the, the crisis with evil is, is moving on, there the the heavenly perspective is not merely a clarifying interpretation of the earth. I mean, it, it actually, in some sense, will seem different than our perception of what's going on on earth. Uh, in the, in this situation, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, we have to understand it that way. But but what you have in heaven, right, is the is the determining perspective on the world. And you hear God offering that, right? That's all those, it was good, it was good, it was good, right? Um, this, this, this is God as a king, 
So think about all the, how, how each day unfolds, right? On the first day, what? How's it go? God said, let there be. That's how each day unfolds, right? Let there be. It's a king declaring, right? Like what should pass, come to pass. And he's in control of it. And yet Nathan in his class uh, on Genesis did a lot talking about like the ancient Near Eastern context of that and how most of the creation stories were conflicts. And, but here, God is in complete control of the whole thing, right? There's no, there's no competing powers uh, in the world for, with him. All right, so if we go on, we get to uh, verses, this is towards the end of the sixth day, uh, verses 26 to 31. Does someone want to read that? Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the air, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning. A sixth day. Can I get you to go three more verses? Sure. I should have had you keep going. Yeah. Yeah, please. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all his work which he had done in creation. Thanks. So, we see... We'll talk more about the image of God in a minute, but we see that humanity is created, right? And they're given what? What are they told? Yeah, I mean, they're given a command, right? They're given uh, stipulations. Uh, now, there's sanctions that are going to follow that we'll learn more about in chapter 2, but, uh, but you see from the beginning, God creates, and with it gives a calling. Uh, gives, gives a task to be accomplished. Uh, and, you know, to top off all the royal imagery, right, the, uh, this, the Sabbath is described here not, not as God needing a break, but as God entering his royal rest, seat, sitting on his throne. So again, this is a common motif in the ancient world that the, the kings would go out and sort of conquer and 
consolidate their kingdom, and then they would go and sit on their throne and rule. And that is the image of the Sabbath. Uh, now, I mean, it, one of its implications for us will be, you know, practical rest from our work, but, uh, but it's also, you know, to sit and rule as a king is also to enjoy, in, in a sense, your kingship. Um, to, to enjoy be, that position for what it is, right? So, uh, so it's enjoying, in a sense, to what we're called to uh, as believers when we practice the Sabbath. That's another discussion for another day. And, um, and then we get into chapter 2, and, uh, or you know, we're already into it, but uh, verse 4, and this is again something Nathan addressed at greater length in his course, you get the first heading of the book. So yeah, most of you know the chapters and verses, that sort of thing. This is a medieval invention to help people find their way around. But, the, uh, but verse 4 is the first clear kind of literary heading, in a sense. These are the generations. There's going to be 10 of those headings throughout that sort of structure the rest of Genesis. It also is clear, by the way, that our, it helps clarify that our reading of Genesis 1 in the first couple verses of 2 is right on. That's a prologue to what follows. Uh, and, and again, you know, in Nathan's class there was some discussion about the poetic kind of side of that. But, the, but what's clear is that that is really a, that is a sort of theological description of creation that begins the whole thing. And then it, it turns to be uh, more of an account of particular people, uh, and, the, and the rest of the rest of Genesis will actually kind of do something similar. It'll back out and give you these long genealogies and talk about these nations and where they go, and then it hones back in on the people that God's drawing our attention to. Right. So, um, anyway, that's just a little bit about how this works. But you get into chapter two and. God, I'm not going to read, we're not going to read all this. He forms a man from the dust, this is verse 7, and breathes life into him. And the word for breath and spirit are the same thing in Hebrew. So, uh, so uh, he gives them the spirit of life would be another way of understanding that verse. And God uh, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there put the man... We had formed him. Uh, uh, and out of the ground, the Lord God made, uh, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and then you, you start to get uh, some other description about what Eden is. And, uh, and then down in verse 15, you have God saying, uh, well, he puts him in the garden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat it, you will surely die. Then God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a, a helper fit for him. And that goes on to describe uh, uh, Eve's creation and their marriage and all that stuff. So... Um, which are important for broader discussions, but not as <laughs> not as central for us today. Um, so you get this this idea of image of God, right? And what are what are the? We said there were 
there were commands associated with it, what are they? You can look back at chapter 1, verse 28. You can think about 2, verse 15. That word dominion, what, what, what is that associated with, even in English? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Control, right? It's, it's associated with kingship, with rule, with governance, right? Um, uh, you hear the call to be fruitful and to multiply, so, uh, and to fill the earth and subdue it. So, the idea, and especially, so that's the general command to humanity, right? To the image of God. Now, as, as Adam is put in this garden, which is the place that, what happens in the garden? What's unique about it? They walk with God. They are naked. And it's like the only... It's the only southern... It doesn't happen anywhere else. One of the few southern words that gets extra syllables, like it has a, it's like a hint of impropriety. Um, no, exactly. They're yeah, they're 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 naked, right? They're not ashamed of who they are. They're, uh, which is a lot about them, and, and their state of mind, state of their hearts. But they're they're there. They're and it, the guy, the idea, right? Is this this place where they meet God? So if they're to fill the earth and subdue it, what is the practical goal of the garden? Or for the garden? Yeah. So they're supposed to extend the borders of the garden to fill the whole earth, so that the whole earth is God's temple. And lo and behold, when you get to the end of Revelation, what is the new heavens and the new earth like? It's a garden. It's also a temple place where you meet God. It's also the you say, you're not supposed to be able to draw it, right? The, the, uh, the, the, the image is shifting, right? But uh, the tree of life is there at the end. Um, so you have, you have Adam set up, and it, again, Nathan did a lot more description of this, the image of God as, as a form of headship, right? A, a king who was under the great king. The great king being God, right? And Adam being the lesser king, uh, who rules in his place. And so, uh, and the idea of an image is associated in the ancient world. You would set up images to, so people would remember who's in charge. Like, at the edge of your, the borders of your land, right? You, this is common in, you know, both Mesopotamia and in Egypt. You'd set up these big statues of the pharaohs or the, or the kings of these places, right? You would set up, you would, the image of a god would be set in their temple uh, so that, you know, it's, it's a little complicated in the ancient world to distinguish between the idol and the god. Um, uh, I don't think they were idiots. I don't think, they, I don't think that they thought <laughs> that the idol literally was the god. But it is still so closely associated with them that, that 
a reverence was due to it, right? Because if you were going to mistreat the image of that god, you would be clearly communicating your disdain for the god. Does that make sense? So, um, so the image of God is a representative. He's filled with the spirit and uh, awaiting confirmation and holiness because the other, I mean, by the way, if that temple association with the Garden of Eden isn't clear, this idea to work and to keep it, those two Hebrew words together only ever occur together uh, in a description of the priest's task in the temple. Um, that's another. In other words, if you're, if you're an ancient Israelite and you're reading this, that's clearly the association in your mind. And, uh, uh, and of course, you know, the most important thing is it's where God meets them. And they get, they get, uh, they're given all the trees, all the fruit of all the trees, except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, so they are given a test. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, awaiting confirmation and passing it. Um, again, we'll, we'll return to that in a second. And then uh, we already sort of hit on this, Eden and the goals of creation, that the presence of God would fill the whole earth. And this is a sort of temple prototype. When the temple is built, there's all these images that are just like the Garden of Eden. Um, and the reason I think the fruit of the trees is a pomegranate is because that's what they built in the, into the temple. Anyway, um, it's not an apple. It's almost certainly not an apple. Uh, that's, those, didn't, those don't exist in the Middle East. So, um, so anyway, the, uh, the temple prototype and this idea of filling and subduing, we talked about extending the borders of the garden. So that gets us, I'm already jumping ahead here, okay, um, to the crisis of obedience, right? Why is the, why is the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil really important for them to have? Let me put it this way. Will they, I'm getting tired of sitting, will they learn about good and evil if they obeyed? Okay, I've got a couple no's. I've got one yes, two yeses. Okay. Um, I think the answer is yes. I, I think that, the, I mean, the Hebrew is ambiguous enough about what the relationship of the knowledge of good and evil is to the tree, that it's not, I don't think you have to understand it as like, this tree represents that knowledge. Rather, what's going on with that tree, the commands around it, are the way in which they will learn good and evil. And they ha in fact, they're called to discern good and evil, right? Because who shows up? Satan. So what should they have done when the serpent slithered in and started talking to them? Yeah. They should have exercised discernment, right? And yeah, whatever that involves, chopping his head off or kicking him out, I don't know. But, the, uh, but like, they were supposed to exercise discernment. Instead, what does Adam do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he, he plays it cool, right? And, like, and keeps his mouth shut. And, uh, you know, and Eve engages the serpent and 
uh, and you know ends up deceived, right? I mean, and Adam again is there playing coy the whole time, right? I don't know what he's doing, but he's not helping, right? And uh, and so you have, as as what happens, what you know, as Genesis three unfolds, you have a lack of discernment, really, on both their parts, in different ways, right? But on both their parts, there's a lack of discernment of good and evil. So the, what they should have done is learn good and evil how? By asking God or obeying Him, right? Instead, they learn by, uh, they learn by their failure. And, and there is a turn of, there's an interesting turn of phrase when, when Satan is tempting them. Uh, he says, this is chapter 3, verse 4, uh, the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, so he is playing on that idea, right, and saying, like, it's not until you assert yourself and your, you know, and your desires that you will learn good and evil. At, towards the end, God is talking uh, in verse 22, and the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, I don't think it means that they shouldn't discern, right? I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a subtle kind of play on different takes on what it, that means, right, throughout, throughout this passage. And so, you know, what God is saying is, I mean, they have learned, but they've learned the wrong way. So he goes on, he says, lest they reach out and take of the fruit of the tree of life and essentially be confirmed in death. I'm going to bar them from it. So, so what you have, again, is that you have these covenantal stipulations, they have, you have a failure, you have a life and death that's on the line, and the first death is spiritual, and that's immediate, right? They're cut, they're cut off from God. Uh... They hide from him. They hide from each other. Um, and then a physical death, which is to follow. I mean, notice that that's the way the Bible talks about resurrection as well, in that order. That you are raised with Christ. It's talking about spiritually being raised, right? And you will one day be raised up in your body. Uh, so resurrection happens the other way. So what we see here is that creation is covenantal by definition. And the whole of the created world is part of God's covenant that we broke. But, you know, while the word covenant doesn't appear here, uh, it probably appears in Hosea 6-7, to talk, talking about Adam and a covenant. It could be talking about humanity more generally because the word Adam um, actually means man. Like it... Um, it's not a very descriptive name of him other than what he is. But uh, so it may or may not be talking about him specifically. But, you know, regardless, what you have is while the word covenant is never used here, all the pieces are there. And even when you go to something like Psalm 136, which is a psalm that, uh, that has a refrain, it has a line and then a refrain that repeats in every verse for uh, the steadfast love of God endures forever. What do you think that steadfast love is in Hebrew? Hesed, 
Um, it's the covenant love. And it begins with creation, and then it goes through uh, God's redemption of them from Egypt, which is covenantal explicitly, and, uh, and his care for them as they wander in the desert and go to the promised land. So, uh, so Hesed is, uh, is quite clearly there. All of this is to say this is all covenantal from the very beginning. And something interesting happened. I mean, so, in other words, what, what ought to be expected is when God comes in judgment at the end, because the covenant is broken, that the whole creation is subject to destruction. Um, instead, while God does judge, right, we hear, we hear something unexpected. So, the, chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, what was, what was man made of? Dust, right? So, this is not the origin story of the snake. This is the... These are clear allusions to, uh, to what's already, what we've already been told. And then this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or he shall strike your head and you shall strike his heel. It, uh, translations could go either way. But um, what is that? What do you make out of that? The only thing, the only character in the story that leaves cursed is who? Adam is not cursed. If what God says is to Adam is because you did this, cursed is the ground. And uh, and to Eve. Uh, Childbearing and a relationship with her husband, but the person not. Now, like, there's a whole lot to unpack and all that. I'm not gonna do that. Um, but, but the, but, but in terms of like the person, right? The person is not cursed, except for the serpent. And what about this conflict between the offspring? What do you notice? Ah, yes. There are some succession arrangements here, right? There's a, uh, this is going to be something passed down. Yeah, it's a singular, which is curious. Right, it's not her offspring in general, right? So it's not like all of humanity... I mean, you could. I mean, um, you could interpret it that way, perhaps, uh, without the rest of scripture. But um, yeah, but it is singular. I mean, the idea that like the like the snake's going to take a bite of the heel, but he's going to have his head crushed while it's happening. 
Um, you know, one is obviously a survivable injury, the other is not. <laughs> um, so, uh, so it will be a, you know, so there, I mean, this is, in a sense, this is a prediction of the end of all things, right? Uh, God's saying, I haven't given up on this. And, and there are hints of sort of covenantal renewal even as they leave. So there's, there is a promise. I think what we're going to see is with Noah next week, there's a lot more to, to be said here. But um, you have, you know, the works of the devil contrasted with the works of God. You could look at 1 John 3, 8 through 10 to think about this, right? And that the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Um, you, there's a, a cosmic warfare being played out and described here. Uh, and again, it's the image of the serpent that comes back up in Revelation to describe God's conflict with Satan. They're given coverings. And at the very least, this means God has bestowed a mantle upon them, which is another symbolic action in the ancient world. Um, uh, it possibly involves a sacrifice. People kind of debate whether that's, how much that's implied or not. But, uh, but the idea that God is clearly reestablishing his relationship with them, even while he's barring them from the Garden of Eden. Because again, why does he bar them from the Garden of Eden? So they won't be confirmed in their state. Absolutely. So um, there's a whole host of things we could think about, you know, if we wanted to go. We could look at Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 and think about how Jesus is the second Adam or the new Adam. He phrases it slightly different ways. Uh, We could look at Matthew 4 when Jesus goes out into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. And what is the main thing he argues with Satan about? Remember? Uh, Yeah, God's word. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a curious thing. And the kingship of the earth. And how he would get it. It's the same strategy. (laughs) It's the same strategy he's using on Jesus that he used on Adam and Eve. Uh, it is worth listening for one second to Colossians 1. Alright, uh, if you have to go get kids, please go do that. We are going to wrap up here in a second, but if you got kids, you got to pick up. Uh, Colossians 1, verse 15. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or uh, dominions or rulers, etc. Okay, so all that's talking about him being the, the, you know, being the image of God in the sense that he is the exact image of God. Uh, and he is before all things, and all, in him all things to hold together, hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, so that speaks of his divine nature, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, that is his human nature, as the one who does what Adam failed to do. So Colossians 1 it picks up this idea of the image of God being restored in Adam, or, or in Jesus, from Adam, right? because Jesus accomplishes what Adam failed to do. Uh, so he's the, the representative king. 
And look, all this gets us to uh, to this point. What we have at the beginning is a covenant of works, right? The, the, our, our basis for us approaching God was obedience to him. What has to follow from here on out is a covenant of grace, where we come based on his provisions, not our own obedience. Um, and that means when we obey in grace, we obey as those who are childlike, who come as his children. Uh, not as those with fear that we will be rejected because, the works, because of our works. Because we're righteous enough. And again, even, though, even when we know this in principle, it's often, I mean, that is a huge part of the practical struggle of Christian life. Is how often we fall back into that fear. Um, but here's the thing. Doesn't obedience need to be given to God? So who obeys? You? Jesus, right? So the covenant of works, in a sense, then does not go away. But it is not ours to maintain. We relate to God in a covenant of grace. Jesus accomplishes the covenant of works. When we get into some of that systematic theology stuff, we'll talk about some of that conversation about how that works out. But, um, but I think then covenant theology helps us to understand, and this is a little chart I stole. I realized that I got it a long time ago, and I couldn't remember where I got it. Uh, I need to probably find out so I can actually credit where this came from. But, I mean, it's a simple chart, but I think it can be helpful to you uh, for thinking about this. Um, but, you know, everything was covenant of works in the beginning. And then now it's all covenant of grace, right? Promise, you know, manifested after Christ and then ultimately consummated at the end of all things. But, um, but this helps us understand covenant theology then and the way that we'll see these covenants, on these individual covenants unfold as part of the big covenant of grace uh, helps us to, to get a view that is both widens the scope of redemption but also continues to narrow as they move along and focus more and more increasingly on Jesus. And we'll see that. So, you know, Noah, not to give too much away, right, is a promise for the whole world. God won't judge and destroy it that way. But increasingly, as these go along, our attention gets more and more focused specifically on Jesus and what he accomplishes. So, whew. All right. Anybody have any questions? There's a little outline of the schedule. Now, next week, we actually have a, there's a, spe we're not going to have this class. We're gonna, there's a meeting that the session is holding, uh, uh, an informational and Q&A kind of thing. So, um, so. This class won't be meeting, but if you're a member of the church, it would be great for you to be at that meeting. Uh, and then the next week we'll pick back up, and it'll, it'll run according to the schedule. Uh, and a couple of resources there for you. Any other questions as we wrap up? All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a covenanting God, that you haven't left us to our own devices, that you haven't left us in sin. You haven't even left us at the mercy of our own of our own works. 
but instead you're a gracious God. And even at the very beginning, you made it clear, you promised. And we know that one day you will, you already have provided what is needed in Christ. And one day you will fully reveal it and put an end to the works of the devil. And we will know more fully that we are really your children. Ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.